You're invited to turn in God's holy word to Hebrews chapters 4 and 5. Chose this text for last week's Lord's Day, connection with communion, but also as a text of encouragement since we seem to be going through a lot of trials, but the trials have only increased since last Sunday, and so I pray the Lord will make these words a word of encouragement for us on this Lord's Day. Hebrews 4, reading verse uh, 15 of chapter 4 down through verse 10 of chapter 5, I'd like to give particular attention to verse 7, to verse 7 of chapter 5. Hebrews 4, verse 15, God's holy word, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. Verse 7 again says of Christ Jesus, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh... When he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Should we ask for the Lord's blessing on his word? Heavenly Father, we cannot possibly understand the realities of your salvation or take them to heart unless your spirit ministers to us. And so we ask that the Spirit of Christ be present with us to encourage our hearts and to strengthen us and to give to all who are suffering trials a strong faith, an enduring faith, an unshakable faith. And we we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit we could see our Lord Jesus and our God and Father as trustworthy, that we would be willing to run to you and to seek refuge in you. So bless your word towards us, 
Towards that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, the letter of Hebrews is a sermon of encouragement because our God is an encouraging God. He gives courage, fresh courage, new strength. That's the nature of the God we have, that he, he doesn't leave his weak children alone, but he, he comes to support them and to strengthen them. And that's what the letter of Hebrews is doing to Christians who had faced persecution in the past, are now facing it or about to face it again, and who are fearful and who some of them are thinking about deserting the faith, of, of hanging up this Christian thing, of maybe going back to Judaism, but they are not sure they can hold on any longer, comes a word from Christ, hold fast your confession. Don't give up. And in many different ways brings that home to us. This morning, Christ is set before us as this great high priest, the great high priest, You know, if you lived in the Old Testament days, the high priest would have been for you a peculiar encouragement just to see him. The high priest set apart in the the vestments that he wore. The very garments he wore declared that he was one who had acceptance with God. He was the one who once a year was able to enter into a place you could never dream to go. Into the holy of holies where the throne of God was found, the Ark of the Covenant, and this man had been appointed by God, invested by God, with the prerogative to enter there with the atoning blood and to represent you before God. He wore on his breastplate the the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. He carried you with him, as it were, into the most holy place, and there he could He could offer atonement for your sins and intercede for you. And he could come out of there with God's blessing to declare to you, you are forgiven. God is with you. And just to see this high priest would have been an encouragement. In times of sickness, times when Israel's enemies were attacking and they wondered what's going to happen. And every day when they thought, How could I ever find peace with God? How could I ever be accepted? I have sinned. I'm not worthy of God. There was a high priest who could go in and receive acceptance, who could take you with him, a mediator, a go-between, who could bring your weak prayers to God, who could secure forgiveness for you, as it were, pointing to our Lord Jesus. Well, the writer of Hebrews knows that some of these saints he's writing to actually are thinking about going back to Judaism, it seems. They, they are, are Jewish Christians who had left the high priest behind, and now maybe they want to go back. And he's saying, you have something far greater. You have the true high priest to which all the Old Testament priesthood pointed, but not a priest of the order of Aaron. Now that priesthood had all kinds of weakness. Not a single high priest actually secured forgiveness, but you have the priesthood of Melchizedek, and you have the Son of God. And so he's encouraging the saints by saying that Christ has passed through certain things. He has suffered in such a way as to be fully qualified to be everything you need as high priest. We want to look this morning at verse 7 in particular and consider, first of all, the anguish that Christ experienced, and then to look at the offering that he made, and thirdly, the answer that he received. The first thing is this this anguish that Jesus 
experienced. We read about the days of his flesh when he was here on earth in weakness. Verse 7, and during those days he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now, the writer has been working here to convince Christians that Jesus Christ has identified himself with you in the midst of weakness. That, that he is not a, a high priest exalted in the high heavens who can't even comprehend or understand life upon earth, but he's saying he is one bound up with you in the experience of his suffering. And he gives us a detail here that's not even found in the gospel accounts, that Christ in the midst of his prayers cried out with loud, passionate cries and deep emotion and shed tears. And he's saying that this one is fully qualified to be your sympathizing high priest who knows you in your weakness. Maybe you've had it said to you before, you know, you, you ought to go talk to so-and-so about that. And you, and you thought to yourself, or maybe you said it out loud, well, it won't do any good to talk to him. He won't understand. She won't get it. They don't have those kinds of problems that I have. Or they, they seem to sail right through the storms. They're not shaken as I'm shaken. I don't think I'll talk to them. And one of Satan's favorite tricks is to present a Christ who, who's thought of in that way by us, that he's, he's high and lifted up, and he, he won't understand my situation. He won't understand my weakness. He doesn't know how frail I am. He doesn't have time for losers like us. For those who've blown it, for those who stumble, for those who are fearful, for those... He doesn't know what it's like to have the threats of enemies work upon the soul. That's what Satan wants you to believe. These Christians, to whom this letter was first written, have tremendous weakness. Growing weary of being Christians. It's costing too much to confess the name of Jesus. And Satan wants them to think, that their troubles cannot be shared with Jesus. Can't, can, you, can you really imagine the Son of God, exalted in glory, that he, that he can understand your fears or your sorrows or your physical weakness, how easily you're pulled about by temptations? And the Holy Spirit says the opposite of what Satan says. The Holy Spirit says... He is utterly qualified. He has never forgot what it was like to go through the trials and temptations of this earth. He's not far off and unmoved, but the Son of God in our human nature, who faced enemies, who endured the temptations of Satan, who stood before the crushing reality that the covenant curse was pronounced upon him, He'd be forsaken of God. He came to the point of crying out with intensity. Cries and sobs. And if you think the Son of God in your flesh is unmoved, you haven't seen him. And we have this problem, of course, that we, we think because he is the Son of God, that therefore, though he may have gone through the things I went through, he was unmoved by them. 
You know, maybe we do that even with humans sometimes, like uh, Joseph. You know, sermons are preached by preachers on Genesis 50 where Joseph's brothers come before him at the end of the book and Father Jacob has died and the brothers are afraid what Joseph will do to them now since he sold them. They sold him into slavery and they come before Joseph and Joseph says, it's okay, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many lives. And he confesses this doctrine of God's providence. And then we, we might take that now and read that back into the previous chapters and think that all Joseph went through, being sold into slavery, taken out of Egypt, cast in a prison, falsely accused, that it was all just something Joseph took in stride because he believed in providence. In fact, you know, when the story begins in Genesis 37, it's put rather matter-of-factly that his brothers took him out of the pit, they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and the Ishmaelites took him down to Egypt. Pretty easy for Joseph. But in the midst of that, between Genesis 37 and Genesis 50, there's this, this episode when the brothers have come down to Egypt for food in the midst of famine, and they, they don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them, and he hears them say, when he accuses them being spies, then they begin to accuse themselves, and they actually say, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. The last memory they have of their brother were those cries, that agony. Please, no, my brothers, no, why would you do this? As he's being handed off to the Ishmaelites to become a slave and probably die pretty quickly down in Egypt. And he was pleading in agony for his life, and they would not hear him. So those words show us that it wasn't so easy for Joseph. And now these words in our text this morning show us that it wasn't so, so easy for Jesus. Vehement cries and tears. That's what our elder brother went through. Son of God shared in our humanity. He lived in our broken world. And the Holy Spirit is saying, look how he has identified with you so he can understand and empathize and support you, that he can feel your sorrows and your fears. He's full of compassion. He knows our nature and the weakness of it. He struggled through temptations, and he's passed through all of this. So, he says in Hebrews 4, verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Don't give up. But he doesn't say, you know, just find the strength within and buck up because it's not so bad after all. No, but he sends them running to the mediator, Jesus Christ, who extends his hand Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't, let ever, don't ever let Satan tell you that, that Christ cannot comprehend your situation. The writer goes on to say it, Chapter 5, verse 1, that in the Old Testament, every high priest was taken from men. God, God did not appoint an angel to be a high priest. He appointed a man because a man is a man. He's one with mankind. And therefore, as he ministered, though he might be tempted at times to get angry at God's people, he always had to look at himself and say, 
I'm just as sinful as them. I struggle with the same things. And so as he ministered on their behalf, he was, he was always to be aware of the needs of the people because he had the same needs. He's one like you. We find it comforting to talk to somebody who's been through it before, right? If you dealing with financial trouble in the business, you maybe want to talk to somebody who's experienced the same thing. Or if you've lost a child or a wayward child, it's comforting to speak with a mother who's, who's endured the same. Or if you have a sickness or facing a surgery, then it, it can be a real consolation to hear another person talk about having gone through it. Well, Jesus Christ has gone through it. Chapter 2 says in verse 17 that in all things he had been made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For in that he himself has suffered when being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He suffered when he was tempted. So God, the Holy Spirit, is showing us our Savior and Shepherd, our great High Priest, who brings our names before the Father, who intercedes for us, not as one unfamiliar with life on planet Earth, not as one unacquainted with our enemies, not as if he doesn't know what it is to face this weakness. He was a real man. He is a real man with our nature. And he endured days of his flesh, days of weakness upon Earth. And he... Though he never sinned, he had not the perfect human nature Adam had, but he had a sin-weakened human nature, subject to suffering and to sickness and to death. And so you can run to him. That's the point. You can run to him because there's nothing in your life he doesn't comprehend. He's filled with kindness. He's compassionate. He deals gently with his people. And you don't have to wait until you get yourself cleaned off, and then you can come to him. But you can come to him all in the midst of your, your, your frenzies and failures and, and all of your confusion. And he comprehends. He's willing. He's a great high priest. Again, Satan would have us believe that you cannot come to Jesus directly. I was telling, I think, the catechism uh, girls in the junior high catechism a couple weeks ago about a, a painting, maybe I told you about it, that I read about from the Middle Ages, that uh, a Roman Catholic painting that showed two ladders going up to heaven. And at the one ladder stood Christ, and everyone coming up the ladder approaching Christ is falling off backwards. He's too holy, too great, can't receive me. And the other ladder went up, and Mary was at the top in heaven. Mary, and she's helping people over to Jesus. Well, that's Roman Catholic theology, right? That you need a saint, you need Mary, you need somebody in between you and the mediator. But that's not biblical theology. Christ is the high priest who is your mediator. Come to him. That's, that's the calling. That's the calling. Don't hesitate. In fact, we're told to come with boldness into the holy of holies. Do you realize what he says in chapter 4, verse 16? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. That in the Old Testament, there was only one man who could come to the throne of grace. Directly, the great high priest. Anybody else parts that curtain and enters into the Holy of Holies and they're consumed by the fire of God. But now in Christ Jesus, you get to come 
directly through Christ into the throne room of God. And wouldn't we be more frequent in prayer and more ready to pray if we were fully convinced we had such a meteor who held out his hands to us in the Holy of Holies, ready to receive us. We're slow to call upon God sometimes and we stay away in our shame of our weakness and we run to other people because we are not convinced that we have such a high priest. And we think that people will be more sympathetic to us, that some human will have more empathy for us than Christ will. And in doing that, we rob Jesus of his honor. We rob him of his glory. For this is his glory, that he is a supportive and understanding high priest. Life of prayer is our Christian duty. Life of prayer is our Christian duty. But we will not pray. And we will not pray rightly. And thus we can see our high priest biblically portrayed to us. Do you pray? Do you seek for your sanctuary in the crises of life? Between the the enemies and the distress and the fears you have, do you seek for your refuge, this place of prayer, that you come into God's presence through Christ Jesus? It's a weak sinner, but certain that you will find a willing audience with God and a mediator who will take you in his arms. If we shrug off the invitation to come boldly, to come constantly, to come believingly, then we dishonor the Son of God, our high priest. Jesus has loved us, and Jesus knows us. So the Holy Spirit has gone out of his way to give us not only the gospel accounts of Christ, but to give us tucked away in this letter of Hebrews an insight into how great was the agony of Jesus. That like Joseph who cried out in anguish of soul, so Jesus agonizing, loud cries, deep emotion, tears. He's been through it. And in him you can find an audience. But he doesn't just sympathize with you. The second thing we must see this morning is that in doing all of this, he did something more. If, if all he did was, was, was gain the ability to understand and sympathize, then, well then, that might make us a friend, but not a helper. But notice secondly this morning that Christ in his anguish was actually making an offering. An offering. The writer of Hebrews, ultimately the Holy Spirit, is being very careful in verse 7 in the language he chooses when he says that in the days of his flesh he offered up prayers and supplications. He doesn't say that he prayed. He doesn't say that he petitioned. He says that he offered up. And that's the language of priesthood. Back in verse 1, it says that the high priest was appointed that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
priest's assignment was not simply to empathize with God's people and say, yeah, you know, we're a miserable bunch, aren't we? But his duty was to do something more. He was to offer up sacrifice for sins. Now, the work of the Old Testament priests never ended because they never actually covered any sin. But at last, God sent his own son, and he came in human flesh, and now he offers up prayers and supplications with, with loud cries and tears. And those are his offerings, and yet we say, is that, is that enough? Is that enough to cover my sin that he cried and groaned? But what's being said here is that he, in the suffering, was offering up himself. Himself. You know, Christ's priesthood is unique in so many ways, but, but one of the ways his priesthood was unique is that in the Old Testament, every priest brought an offering or sacrifice that was other than himself, right? He brought an animal, brought a sheep, he brought a goat. But this priest brings as sacrifice himself, himself. And so Christ, in his, in his prayers and petitions and his his cries and his tears is engaged in a self-offering. He is actually laying himself upon the altar of the cross. We don't know all the times that Christ offered up prayers with loud cries and tears. Maybe the writer of Hebrews knows more than we do, but, but he's probably thinking especially of the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And even there we don't read about the the tears, but we do know it was an anguished time. Christ said, it's very sorrowful, I'm very distressed. We read about him uh, sweat dripping as if uh, drops of blood. Christ was in agony. And when Christ prayed to the Father, he wasn't praying to escape as if he thought that he didn't need to die. I mean, he knew full well he was commissioned by the Father to be the sacrifice for sins. He had to die, but, but in his human nature, he abhors death, right? He he seeks to avoid that horrible thing, right? Of death, the indescribable agonies. Christ doesn't, doesn't go to death rejoicing. He doesn't go to death as if it's no big deal, but he's, he's astonished. He's fearful. It's horrible. He doesn't even go to death as some of the martyrs did with, with the boldness of, of singing a song of praise as they're burning in the flames. Christ goes as one who is bearing the weight of the curse of God. And even as it begins to settle upon him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is, he is horrified. So he pleaded, God, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but, but not what I will, but you, what you will. And Christ was, was surrendering himself to, to the Father in spite of this dread. as the sin bearer. As the one who had to stand all alone as our substitute beneath the wrath of God. And Christ in the garden was seeing this cup of God's wrath being handed to him. And he was shuddering. And he would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so, you know, we read about Jesus being nailed to the cross. But we ought to be crystal clear in our minds this morning that, that it was not men who laid the sacrifice upon the altar. It was Christ who laid himself upon the altar. What the writer of Hebrews speaks of here is of a priest engaged in the work of offering. And that could be an exhausting work for priests, as you can imagine. Think of, think of the Passover or... Uh, 
feast days in Israel when they had to slaughter lots of animals. I mean, that was a, that was a physical, exhausting work to be a priest and to do all this butchery. But Christ, more than any priest, was engaged in a strenuous work of offering himself to God, of submitting his will. It's reading in the Old Testament last week of one of the kings of, of Judah who offered his son a sacrifice. Well, that's a cheap way out. You got fears? Here, kill your son. Offer him as a sacrifice to your gods. It's what we're prone to do as humans, right? To offer someone else up. It's the sadness of abortion, isn't it? That these unborn lives are being offered up for the convenience of their parents to escape responsibility, burdens. And Christ here is not offering us up, is he? He's offering up himself. He's overcoming all the fear and the horrors of death. He's laboring to see that the sacrifice given is an unblemished sacrifice. Do you see it? If Christ does not do this properly, if he does not, if he does not engage this work in the right way, if he, if he stumbles in the midst of the temptations and the fears and the taunts of the devil, then the sacrifice, if it's blemished, it's of no good, no use. So Christ is very, very focused You know, the priests of the Old Testament had all these details and regulations that they had to keep. And Christ here is is very concerned that he offers himself in the right way to God that he might be the sacrifice for our sins. And so what is he praying for? He's praying in in his supplications and prayers and loud cries. He's praying that God will be glorified. Remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, Jesus says at one point, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So he's praying above all that God be glorified. He's praying that God's will will be done. And he's praying that his sacrifice will be effective to cover our sins. And what's the answer to all of those prayers? We'll look at that finally this morning. What's the answer to, to all of those prayers? We read that in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. He was heard. He received a positive answer from his father. What that verse means, what those words mean, is that his sacrifice was accepted. He was pleading with God. He was agonizing. He was struggling. He was praying that God would strengthen him to endure the temptation, to offer himself rightly. And he was heard. Not not every... Sacrifice in the Old Testament was accepted. You remember that first chapter of Malachi and its scathing rebuke of the priest? You bring the the defiled animals, you bring the lame animals, you bring the crippled animals. Your own governor would accept those from your hands as a gift, and you bring those to me as the sacrifice? It's in vain. I will not accept your offering, God says. But he did accept Jesus' offering, he was heard. Because of his godly fear. 
The writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians who have stumbled, right? Spirit's speaking to us this morning as those who are weak and have often stumbled. We've, we've never presented one single sacrifice to God that of itself was perfectly acceptable. But what a great high priest, reverently submitting to the Father's will in all, in all godliness and all reverence. And so he was accepted. Verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Christ learned obedience. He learned the full extent of the requirement that was laid upon him. I mean, he could have not fathomed how, how much would be demanded of him. The closer he got to the cross, the the more of the reality was breaking forth and he was seeing how much was demanded of him to suffer the curse of God. The demand was greater and greater and greater and he was learning more and more to yield to that, to give himself to that. Maybe we're learning in our lives more and more what it means to obey God. You know, that's the nature of the Christian life, actually. When we're a child, we... We think that obedience is, you know, just about these three things. Obey mom and dad and don't hit your brother or sister. And as you grow up, you begin to realize that God's law is, a, is, is, is enormously broad. His, his law applies to my thought life, to the words I speak, to, to the recreation, to everything. Maybe when you're young, you think it's just about outward things. And you learn it's about heart attitudes. God cares about not just that I do the right thing, but I do it with the right heart. And we're learning more and more of the obedience that God seeks from us. And the original audience that, that the writer writes to here, they're learning. This is a higher cost than they comprehended when they signed up to be a Christian. He says, you've been through it once before, right? You lost property. You had people imprisoned. Now you're about to face it again. And they're thinking again, again now? And they're learning obedience through the things that they suffer. But the writer says Jesus already learned obedience to the full extent of offering his life, even to suffer the death, death of a cross. And he, through all his sufferings, grew in his capacity to fulfill that requirement until he came to that climactic moment in the garden of Gethsemane and then upon the cross to offer the obedience Romans 5 says that as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. That's this, that he learned obedience. He learned the obedience by the things he suffered. So what's the good news for us this morning? Good news is that he was heard. He prayed and God answered. He prayed and God sent an angel to the garden to strengthen him. He prayed that he would not fall to temptation and, and God upheld him. He prayed for the grace to, to make the supreme self-offering. And by God's power of his spirit, he did that. He prayed that his sacrifice would cover our sins and be the unblemished, acceptable, atoning sacrifice. And it happened and God raised him from the dead. And God delivered him from the jaws of death. And and he's the victor. And death has no hold on him because he paid the penalty. And death therefore had no power. 
So the writer of Hebrews says over and over, it's by one sacrifice he's done it all. He, having purged our sins, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, chapter 1. It's over. There's no sacrifices for this priest anymore. No blood atonement. And therefore, you'll never know. You'll never know. I will never know the weight of sin and how awful the curse of God is and how dark hell is because Jesus went there for us. Now the writer of Hebrews says, verse 9, and having been perfected, He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He's the very source of our light and life and hope. Hebrews 2, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, listen to this, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Through his sufferings, Christ became perfect. That is, he obtained for us the fullness of salvation that he might bring many sons to glory. And how does he do that? Well, he's opened heaven up to us by his sacrifice covering our sins. But he's also opened up to us the throne room to receive all the help and assistance that we need in this life. And we do need it. Because we are called to believe to the end and to overcome. That's the way we have to hold on to the end. We have to hold on to the end. And Christ has this good news for us that his prayers were effective. He prayed vehemently. He prayed passionately. He prayed intensely. And he was heard. And if he was heard in the days of suffering the curse, won't he be heard in heaven now where he reigns victoriously? If he got an answer as a sin bearer, can't he get answers for you as the victor? Isn't he able to take your weak tear-filled prayers and to present them to the Father in such a way that you also will be heard by God to be strengthened, to be helped in your time of need. The audience of Hebrews thinks they can't hold on any longer and he sets before them their mediator, Jesus Christ, And he says, here's the one who was heard because of his godly fear. So why don't you go to God through him and be assured that you will be heard because of his godly fear. He knows the life of humiliation upon earth and he knows the victory that he's achieved. We fail. He never failed. We fail even to pray. He never failed to pray. He is our intercessor. He is our mediator. And he speaks to us in this word to encourage our hearts, to give us fresh courage. Come. Come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help you 
at just the right moment in your time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, teach us to pray, we ask. Teach us to pray in Jesus' name. Teach us to pray believingly. Teach us to pray constantly. Teach us to pray in hope. Teach us to pray with an eye upon our Savior who has suffered upon earth and knows our trials. Teach us to pray with an eye to heaven, where Christ, having atoned from sins, rules over all things for the good of his people. Oh God, how we thank you for our matchless mediator, our great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. In his name we ask you for help. Amen.